Hello, and thank you for joining us. We have all seen the recent headlines and have felt the impacts of soaring heat waves, massive floods around the world, and wildfires destroying acres and acres of land. I remember just last February, the freeze in Texas caused massive power outages, damage to infrastructure, and 172 people lost their lives here in our communities. There's no doubt that we are in a climate crisis. The question is, what can we do to respond? What does a system more resilient to catastrophic risk look like? It is our, is our response going to be too late? Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment, Alice Hill from the Council on Foreign Relations will talk with us today about confronting the dangers that lie ahead. Again, thank you for joining us. I'm Kirsten Cullenberg, Director of Programs at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, tonight's uh, virtual program, as I mentioned, will feature Alice Hill of the Council on Foreign Relations, moderated by Brendan Steele of Future 500. If you aren't yet a member of the World Affairs Council, perhaps, perhaps this webinar is the first time you're engaging with us, I encourage you to join us as a member. We'd love to welcome you to our community of engaged citizens across North Texas and beyond. You can visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership, as well as some of our upcoming programs, which I'll touch on in just a moment. I'd like to quickly recognize the Council's institutional partners, NEC Corporation of America, as well as Lockheed Martin. We're thrilled to have them on board with us as dedicated members to support our mission of educating and engaging the, our local community on why what's happening around the world matters here at home. And finally, I'd like to introduce our moderator for this program. Brendan Steele, an expert on all things oil and gas, energy and climate policy. He grew up with one foot in the San Francisco Bay Area and the other in an oil family where he was able to find common ground in uncommon places. Steele holds a BS in excuse me, biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of California, Davis, and a master's in climate and society from Columbia University. While at Columbia, he worked with the Urban Climate Change Research Network at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies to facilitate knowledge sharing on climate change and cities. He spent six years working in the environmental chemistry field where he was a liaison between federal regulators and his team of chemists and data ana analysts. Brendan now works for a company called Future 500, who does fantastic work working with um, companies across the United States and around the world on climate uh, steps that they can take. Uh, Brendan, I'm so thrilled that you're joining us for this program tonight. I will turn it over to you. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you. And it's my honor today to introduce Alice Hill. Alice is the David N. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her work focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. She previously served as Special Assistant to President Barack Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of national policy for building resilience related to climate change and biological threats. In 2009, she served as senior counselor to the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and she led the design of DHS's first ever climate adaptation plan and the development of strategic plans regarding catastrophic biological and chemical threats, including pandemics. Her writing has appeared in multiple publications, including Axios, CNN, Foreign Affairs, Nature and Lawfare, among others. She co-authored a book, Building Resilient Tomorrow, 
which was published in 2019, and her most recent book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19, was published in September 2021. She's here to talk with us today about how we can face and minimize the risks of the, of the climate crisis, more specifically on adaptation and the future of global cooperation to fight the climate disasters we are approaching. COP27, the Global Climate Summit, will take place this month in Egypt. We're very excited for this timely conversation. Alice, again, thank you for joining us. And let's, let's dive into it. You know, as we shared, your work focuses quite a bit on the risks, consequences, and responses to climate change, that is, resilience to climate disasters and what is called adaptation. You know, what does a more resilient system to catastrophic risk look like? And is our response coming too late? Well, thank you so much for that generous introduction, Brendan, and for having me here, Kirsten. Uh, it's really an honor to join the council. Excellent question. It's a nuanced issue, what is occurring with our climate, but there's several things that have emerged very clearly. One, that our climate is changing and that change is happening at a quickening pace. Uh, there are things that we can do to reduce the amount of change that is occurring. Uh, and that would be cutting human-caused emissions. But on the preparedness side or the resilience side, that means preparing for climate worsened events like drought, extreme heat, cold weather that uh, Texas experienced, worsening wildfires, sea level rise, and this amount of rainfall that falls all at once, as you experienced very vividly in Texas with Hurricane Harvey, where so much rainfall is dropped that there's no place for those waters to go and it causes flooding. So the preparedness, resilience is to prepare for those events and then respond to them and then recover but in any preparedness and recovery, there is a critical element that is often missed. And that is that because of the changes to our climate, our infrastructure is in many instances simply not up to the task. If you take our electric grid, uh, it was met, large parts of it were built in the last century. That means that they were designed for rainfall patterns of the last century nowhere near the rainfall patterns that we're already experiencing, much less those in the future. They were designed for the wind speeds. They didn't uh, anticipate the kinds of wildfire risks, the extreme drought, 1200 year drought in the American West that can ignite a wildfire if a, a power line drops, for example. So we are seeing cascading failures of infrastructure. Of course, if the electric grid goes down, there's usually other sectors, wastewater treatment plants is one that is commonly pictured. Uh, just the pumping stations fail and then the waste goes into adjoining waterways. Uh, then you'll see the communication system fail, the transportation system fail. You can't pump gas without electricity. You can't, in some instances, um, get the uh, gas to uh, the uh, pumping stations. So there's nodes that if they go down, especially the electric grid, everything else fails. But that electric grid and the critical infrastructure sectors are designed for the past. 
So we have a lot of retrofitting and design work ahead to be resilient going forward. Uh, so uh, it's not too late. The question is, do we have the will to do it? Uh, and that is what is the major barrier at this point to making progress on this issue. Picking up on the concept of will, you know, a lot of the conversation revolves around physical infrastructure, you know, electricity grids and things of that nature. But one of the things you also think is important in this conversation is the role of cognitive biases of human decision-making. Can you share with everyone here what you mean by that? Yes, um, in my former professional career, I was a judge uh, in the Los Angeles Superior Court. I got very interested in decision-making because that's uh, the role of a judge. That's your job description is to be a decision maker. Uh, and uh, through the course of my judicial education, um, the training for judges, I learned about uh, the various cognitive biases. There's a lot of current uh, popular literature about this uh, that can distort uh, proper analysis. And then later when I started working on climate risk, I spoke to a chief risk officer at a major reinsurance company. Of course, a, reinsurer, a reinsurance company insures the primary insurance company. So if you get property insurance or automobile insurance, you get that from your primary insurance company. But that primary insurance company is probably buying reinsurance in case they have a major loss to protect them. So reinsurers take a global view and they have been very outspoken about climate risk. This chief risk officer said, you know, the longer he spent 30 years in the business, the longer I'm in this, I think it's one of the, our challenges are these cognitive biases. So what are the examples of cognitive biases that could affect decision-making? Well, one of the things is that uh, most humans are optimists, and that's good. That helps people uh, navigate life. But if you step back, uh, I think this example was in Freakonomics, one of the popular books, uh, and look at the divorce rate, and then look at all the people walking down the aisle saying, till death do us part, that's optimism bias. You figure you're going to have a lasting marriage, uh, and the optimism bias uh, guides you. Another uh, bias that we have, and this is on display in media reports about disasters, it's recency bias. Uh, we tend to uh, judge catastrophic risk based on what we have ourselves experienced and, or what someone who's close to us. So we tend to think, well, there hasn't been a storm here in 20 years or 25 or whatever it is, so I'm not at risk. Uh, but uh, then you'll see uh, people saying, oh, I've lived here 25 years, this never happened, it's so shocking. Actually, under the climate modeling, these events are very consistent with what's been predicted, but it's just hard for people to internalize that and change their actions because they haven't experienced it uh, themselves. A similar bias is, um, availability bias. If you just haven't heard of it, then you're going to tend to discount it. So there have been some interesting studies that even when there's more explicit disclosure of risk, sometimes people discount it. Um, similarly, with evacuation warnings, we know that cognitive biases 
you know, for example, I've never been in a bad hurricane, so this one's not going to be that bad, so I'm not going to evacuate. Uh, that kind of thinking uh, can interfere with the proper assessment of what's going on. So uh, for policymakers, that means that policies need to be attentive to the fact that people may resort to these cognitive biases to make decisions. And these cognitive biases aren't bad things. They help uh, everyone navigate decision-making in their own lives. We can't ponder every decision, so we go to a default mechanism. But sometimes with these really big risks, it means we don't quite do the calculations that we need to do. Um, Alice, you you touched on a question that just came in through the Q&A, and I want to emphasize once again, please feel free to submit questions. I'm monitoring them live, and we're going to integrate audience questions throughout the conversation, not just at the end. But the, the question, and maybe we could tie it in with the Inflation Reduction Act as well, you know, why is it so difficult to convince lawmakers that climate change should be addressed, and why is it so difficult to pass legislation? Well, it has taken us many years to get the Inflation Reduction Act, and of course that act passed um, because uh, it passed in the House, which is democratically controlled. It passed in the Senate on a 50-50 basis because our Senate is split with uh, the Vice President uh, casting the deciding vote. We are politically divided on this issue. There is uh, really uh, no question about it. We're divided uh, is reflected in the polling and we're divided on policies. We've also uh, been historically divided on whether it's a problem and whether it's really happening. That seems to be uh, dying down a bit uh, or, or going away, the, the sense that, oh, no, climate change isn't happening, it's, it's not a risk. Uh, but we still have a political divide that affects our ability to uh, push legislation. I think the political divide also may uh, reflect some of uh, these cognitive or the inability of Congress to reach legislation. Uh, these cognitive biases. One of the challenges with climate change is that the impacts are delayed. So what has happened since, since, uh, during, since the Industrial Revolution, humans have relied on fossil fuel energies and have construction and agricultural practices that um, cause greenhouse gas or carbon pollution, methane pollution to form a kind of blanket around the globe. And if you think of a warm, uh, a cold winter night when maybe your parent or someone came into your room and threw a blanket on your bed because you were a little cold, and then in the middle of the night, you wake up and you're really hot. That's what this roughly what this blanket of pollution is doing, but it takes time for the heating to occur, just as it took time when you were asleep at night for the heating to occur. And it's that delay in the heating that uh, could contribute to people thinking, oh, this isn't that big a deal, but scientists on a consensus basis across the globe have warned that uh, continued heating will bring 
serious consequences, some of which have been on view for Americans. I think most Americans can look out their window now and see climate change in action. It could be a climate worsened hurricane, climate worsened drought, climate worsened extreme rainfall. And we now have scientists, science that can tell us, you know, that event in the Pacific Northwest, that terrible heat dome that we had, it never would have happened without climate change or something to that effect, or it's 25% worsened. Um, but that is a lot to um, calculate when you're, you're saying to people, we need to change our energy system, we need to change our uh, transportation system to reduce this accumulation of pollution, but to avoid impacts in the future. And that calculation is sometimes hard uh, to explain. It, it's just not something you can condense into uh, short statements for people to understand. So it requires some uh, spending some time with the topic for voters to understand uh, fully what's at stake. And, uh, and then you have a political overlay on this that makes it even more challenging to have those discussions. Um, let's continue on the topic of the Inflation Reduction Act for a moment. Um, you know, what, what is your assessment of the legislation? Where is it strong? Where, where do you see it might be deficient? Well, we have to recognize that it's historic. You know, uh, if you go back to 1988, it was a really hot day in the summer, and a scientist from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, went up to Capitol Hill and testified that he uh, was virtually certain that heating that was occurring, that could be measured, uh, was as a result of human-caused pollution in the atmosphere. Now, that was known, and, and really uh, that finding has now consensus of the science. Uh, it's widely accepted. Uh, in fact, I think the debate here in the United States, my uh, international friends tell me we are an outlier and that we're still debating whether it's human caused in some rooms. That's really not the debate elsewhere. Uh, but anyway, he gave that testimony and it took till 2023 or 2022 for the US Congress to pass major legislation about climate change. That legislation is primarily focused on cutting the harmful pollution. It's not focused on the resilience or the preparing the impact side. There are a few measures that address that resilience adaptation side in the Inflation Reduction Act, but the bulk of it, most of the $369 billion devoted to energy and climate will go to the cutting of emissions, which will reduce the heating. Uh, it's significant in a number of ways. It has a 10-year runway, so that gives more time to government, for businesses, to plan against uh, this money and to take advantage of this money. It offers many tax credits and incentives to businesses and uh, residents in the United States to invest in more efficient uh, energy systems and to do research to develop uh, alternative uh, energy sources. And then uh, as we head to the 27th Conference of the Parties, this is 
where a hundred and representatives from 194 nations, I think it's the largest convening of this type in the world, convene on basically an annual basis, except for when there's a pandemic, to discuss climate change. And that, as you've referenced, will happen in Egypt starting next week. I will attend. It is uh, an opportunity for uh, greater discussion about how countries can cooperate in addressing this problem. Importantly, the United States has something to uh, share with other nations to demonstrate its commitment to addressing this problem. Other nations have viewed the United States with skepticism. We are the world's historic largest cause of the uh, emitter of this harmful pollution. And we're the second largest after China of emissions that are causing this blanket. And then of course, you've seen a flip-flop in our politics on this. Uh, so that some countries have question and frankly, uh, I hear occasionally continue to question our commitment to addressing the climate challenge. So I anticipate that President Biden's envoy, uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, will be carrying forward a message that the United States intends to address climate change through this historic legislation. One question building off of that flip-flopping, and then with audience questions are coming in fast and furious, but um, you know, the how do you assess the the so-called political durability of the Inflation Reduction Act, especially if there's a change in administration or a change in Congress in the coming years? That's a really interesting question. I am a former judge, I'm a lawyer, I don't know the answer. Um, there are a number of things that I anticipate. I don't know uh, if the act could be undone. It would, pro uh, from what I've told, it would take 60 votes uh, in the Senate uh, to undo the legislation. So that will depend um, on uh, the makeup of the Senate going forward. Uh, the other area that we can anticipate um, that there will be continuing um, uh, questioning of climate policy is in the courts. Uh, the Supreme Court in a recent case involving the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate uh, uh, pollution from power plants um, articulated a doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine that essentially says when you have a big issue like climate change, uh, the court expects that Congress will have specifically articulated um, what the agency can do in that space. So uh, this doctrine constrains uh, federal agency rulemaking, and it's not just in climate, it's in any area, but uh, it's anticipated that there'll be additional legal challenges to any rulemaking that's done. And that would, I imagine, include pursuant to the Inflation Reduction Act. Shifting gears in the audience question here, what does the war in Ukraine mean for energy, climate, and food? And could it prompt a long-term shift towards sustainability? Well, it's been really interesting to watch uh, what's happened uh, to climate policy as a result of the war in Ukraine. 
certainly um, in many instances, it reminded me of what um, is very clear when you're working in the White House that uh, the urgent can overtake the important. Uh, so more being urgent, uh, climate change is urgent, I believe, but uh, it's viewed uh, as more of a, a an, something that can be addressed later. So I think uh, there has been some of that observed worldwide. But interestingly, the International Energy Agency recently came out with, a, with an analysis said that the war actually accelerated the transition to clean energy because Europe and others that had been dependent on Russian oil um, had to change very quickly. And that has driven greater interest in getting to clean energy. There are many open questions here. Uh, I, I don't certainly uh, can't foretell uh, in the crystal ball how this will play out and how prolonged it will be. Uh, but uh, it has um, resulted in greater interest in LNG, um, which liquefied uh, natural gas. Yes, and which is um, can involve uh, does involve natural gas is methane, and methane happens to be one of the uh, more heat producing greenhouse gas emission. Carbon uh, stays up in the atmosphere longer, but methane is shorter lived, but it causes more heating. So uh, last year at the Conference of the Parties, uh, the 26th COP, uh, countries with US leadership got together and said, we need to address methane. If we cut our methane now, we can buy ourselves more time because we'll slow the heating because uh, methane causes more immediate heating. Um, so there has been a build out, uh, and I think much of this was pre-existing efforts, because you can't just turn on a dime and um, uh, open LNG facilities, but there has been increased uh, interest in LNG and certainly in the green community, there's concern about investments in LNG infrastructure, that could have a longer life than the immediate needs uh, that are have arisen as a result of the Ukrainian war. So there are countervailing forces here, um, but uh, the International Energy Agency has been quite explicit that uh, we cannot achieve our goals of 1.5 degrees Celsius, and it's, it seems somewhat doubtful that we'll achieve that, but we can't keep ourselves to safer, a safer temperature rise if we continue to invest in fossil fuels. And I will just add one additional thing. The consensus in the scientific community is that every tenth of a degree matters in terms of how bad these impacts are, that they increase exponentially as we add more heat. So there's a huge reasons to, to, to really try to keep the heating down because it's not a linear uh, change. And um, of course, then there are some other consequences that the modeling shows could happen, which would be uh, quite dire. But just we're just I'm just talking about the droughts, the wildfires, which are yeah. terrible, but they're not like uh, rapid sea level rise, which is something that for a dieback of forests across the globe, yeah. which are and some of the tipping points that scientists have identified as risks. Yeah, your, your comment reminds me that 
you know, heat from a physics point of view is a measure of the energy content. And you think of the scale of the atmosphere, the volume of the atmosphere in the oceans to raise it by a tenth of a degree Celsius is actually adding a, an unfathomable amount of energy into the system. And so it really is, it, it does matter from a scientific point of view. You know, another uh, audience question here. Recently, we've seen, seen headlines circulating online that the ozone layer is healed quite a bit. How accurate is that? And has the ozone layer depletion been slowing? You know, I can't really comment on that. I haven't read up on that lately. I've been focused on um, climate change. Maybe that's connected to changes in the ozone level. Certainly uh, pollutants affect the ozone level, um, but I don't, I can't comment on that. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes, uh, you know, ozone depletion and climate change are conflated, even though they're different phenomena caused by different, um, different types of pollutants in the atmosphere. Now, uh, another question here, climate change is a, a global problem and efforts in many countries to reduce emissions are very likely to be offset by the growth in emissions, particularly in China and India, but also in other growing economies. Why is the balance of the argument for addressing climate change on reducing emissions rather than addressing adaptation and improving the resilience of our infrastructure? I think this is a question about the tension between mitigation and adaptation. Well, there are a variety of reasons why um, mitigation tends to dominate the discussions. And that has certainly been true for all the prior conference of the parties that have been held. Um, when scientists first started addressing this problem, uh, you know, in the 1980s in a serious way, we had enough time, that is we, the global community had enough time to address it. So the thought was, let's not talk about adaptation. Let's just try to keep the hating from happening and then you don't need adaptation. So um, huge amounts of effort went to trying to cut the harmful accumulation of pollution. Um, but over time, uh, that has proven not to be as successful as anyone had hoped that was part of those discussions. Um, and so the need for adaptation has uh, grown. And climate change doesn't, climate change affects virtually everything. It affects every corner of the earth, but it doesn't affect everything equally. So there's some areas that have had the least to do with creating the climate crisis that are paying very stiff prices already. Um, you can think of a small Pacific Island state that is already very close to sea level um, and those modest, so seeming modest increases of sea level rise means that their fresh water is, uh, has uh, saltwater intrusion, so their drinking supplies are affected. Their storm surge, if a storm comes, a storm comes through, the storm surge goes higher. Uh, they may have sunny day tidal flooding and then eventually just the plain old serious loss of land. Um, and then a country like Pakistan that this year uh, suffered in January and February from extreme heat. And then uh, several months later, the monsoons changed and a third of the nation was underwater, affecting crop um, crops, leaving millions homeless, and they've had 
Pakistan also has had almost nothing to do with creating the problem. So at this upcoming conference of the parties, there will be great, uh, much greater emphasis on getting money to these nations uh, that are on the front lines of climate change to help them adapt, but also to help them transition to clean energy. You know, there's some 600 million people. This is the first COP in Africa, and there's some 600 million people in Africa who still don't have power, electrical power, reliable electrical power. So they, those countries have, some of them expressed, the developing world is telling us we have to do all this clean energy, but we have some fossil fuel re resources we want to develop, and why shouldn't we be able to develop like the the developed world. But of course, it's in our interest that we keep this pollution down because we also suffer. It, it's a global problem. And um, it, yes, China is very important to this. Yes, India is important to this. And it, to the extent that there is some kind of multilateral pressure that can be brought to bear, it's very important that the United States shows that it's serious because if you were looking at this on a pure, pure liability basis, for example, in a court, as I was a judge, the United States bears responsibility, even though it may not have appreciated what was going on, but it would bear responsibility for this. So that's the thinking that the developing world is bringing to COP27, and they are asking for more money for adaptation more money for mitigation. And by the way, the developed world has not honored the promises it's given so far for that money. And then it's uh, asking for loss and damage, which is to compensate it for the people's lives that are lost, uh, but also for um, infrastructure that's lost and then for to help prepare for uh, future extremes. So, this will be an issue that is growing in prominence, and I think it will um, cause more friction between the global south and the global north as to how we proceed. But all of us pay the price of more emissions accumulating. If China and India do more, there's, re there's repercussions for us. We've just established that that one-tenth of a degree matters, and it matters to us with more intense storms, droughts, wildfires, other uh, climate impacts. So we have to see if we can work together to find solutions that get everyone to um, cut emissions so that we can all be safer. Yeah. And when we talk about the concept of climate preparedness, climate resiliency, you know, vulnerability is, is an important aspect of that analysis, but it's not just vulnerability in terms of, say, physical infrastructure, the vulnerability of communities, things like Poverty are, are really quite salient in terms of the analysis. And so how does how do things like poverty, you know, impact, uh, affect the impact of climate catastrophes on communities? Well, just as we see um, vulnerable countries, it's uh, being uh, more impacted, vulnerable communities are more impacted here in the United States. And because of some, uh, Practices, historical practices, redlining, and other things. We see concentrations of uh, 
poorer people in highly vulnerable places where they don't have a lot of flood protection or um, they're because they can't afford more, they are driven to areas that are at greater wildfire risk because it's cheaper out in the mountains. Um, and uh, so we have a lot of people um, that are threatened by worsening climate impacts. We also have cost-benefit analysis that tends to, uh, from the federal government as it's investing uh, in preparedness, that tends to value property over people. So if you value property over people, more expensive property gets more protection than lower cost property that uh, may house more vulnerable populations. And then when you're talking about extremes, uh, and this was something that uh, has been brought home to me, uh, vulnerable populations are at far greater risk. So people with disabilities, um, you saw in Hurricane Ian, the deaths were uh, older people. They can't move as quickly. They um, may suffer from some infirmity. And then uh, if you go worldwide, girls and women suffer disproportionately from climate or disasters writ large. Uh, females are 14 times more likely, according to the United Nations, to die in a natural disaster than men. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that as these events worsen, we have thought through how we can protect those who are challenged in these events in unique ways. And you can just imagine this happens both in the United States and worldwide. After a disaster, there's confusion, people are lost, uh, human trafficking goes up. So uh, people don't have their families to support them. Criminal activity goes up. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons we want to be better prepared uh, to reduce just the misery and hardship that we know comes with just the pounding of these big events. Your answer reminds me that I believe it's a Project Drawdown has identified the empowerment of women worldwide as, one of, as being one of the underappreciated solutions to climate change. And again, if, for any, if anyone here wants to learn more about that, I suggest consulting Project Drawdown. They have a, a book that goes into some detail about that. On some audience well, when, when I'll just oh, say, no. when I was writing my book, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm a woman. I've uh, been interested in uh, women's experience. It was really shocking to me how these gender impacts work through the system. So just an example, mm -hmm. uh, a, a disaster occurs, and this happened um, in Afghanistan. There was wide reporting of this. Girls are sold into marriage at age three because, and the, you know, the father of the family is quoted, I have six kids. I got to feed them. I'm going to sell her uh, so that I can feed the other kids. And then the girls are the last to eat. And then uh, the women who bear the children are malnourished, and then they give birth to malnourished children. And stunting of children uh, has just long-term implications for a country. So I, I just had never appreciated how discrimination 
can have impacts across the board uh, for the health of the nation uh, and the health of the in individuals involved. Now, some of the questions coming in, the, the movements around, you know, just stopping oil or keeping it in the ground, protests of that nature have got mixed responses um, in terms of elevating their approach and their message. Um, do you see the approach that a uh, number of activisms take, activists take around civil protest? Do you see that having any positive impact on bringing awareness to the issue, as well as changing the priorities of policymakers? Well, I can I I don't know uh, in the United States. I can't point to anything that's directly um, you know some protests that uh, directly changed policy. But I can tell you that my um, my acquaintances across the globe, uh, it, but especially in Europe, say that uh, the protests, the Friday school protests that Greta Thornburg sparked, uh, the teenager, uh, have really uh, promoted activism. And the European Union has definitely stepped up as a leader on climate change. So uh, there is some sense. Um, and then uh, Greta Thornburg also uh, decided that she wouldn't fly to Glasgow uh, for the, that was COP26. She took a ship, a sailing ship. And uh, since then there has been the concept of flight shaming in France. Uh, they're trying to stop short flights because there's a, just a lot of emissions and you could take a train instead. Um, and uh, in Scandinavia, I'm told that is a growing movement of flight shaming uh, that people are expected to take shame, uh, take trains. So, you know, uh, greater awareness can, and that can be through a civil protest, can cause people to think through uh, what their actions mean in terms of uh, the greater problem. Now, any but individuals flying isn't necessarily going to make a material difference, but um, lots of people flying, lots definitely contributes to the problem of climate change. You know, we see a lot of companies today, global companies as well as national companies in the United States, making commitments related to what's called net zero emissions. Um, you know, how do you see those commitments? Um, are they a pipe dream? Do you see them as substantive? Do you have a, an opinion on them? It will, well, it will also be interesting at COP27 because at COP26, Mark Carney, who was the former uh, head of the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada, uh, brought together titans from industry, the financial industry across the board uh, to give net zero promises. Uh, and at the time it was 130 trillion assets involved and now it's 150 trillion assets. But in that year, uh, since last year, there have been a lot of questions. What does that net zero commitment mean? Is it, you know, you can't wait till 2050 to tell us how you're gonna do this. What are your interim plans? What are your interim targets? And some major banks have said now they're very nervous with, about this net zero commitment. Uh, and they are, they've adjusted, uh, Mark Carney has adjusted what that commitment looks like so that the banks stay in. And then there continues to be um, 
concerns that uh, there's greenwashing. And greenwashing is essentially call, saying whatever I'm doing contributes to the health of the environment. But then if you look under the hood, maybe everybody wouldn't agree that that contributes to the health of the environment. But using that green label just causes uh, great interest. We all want to be, you know, not we all, but many people are interested in saying, I invest in a green way. Uh, uh, so we're seeing that uh, there's greater interest, for example, from the Securities and Exchange Commission um, as to what these representations about how green a bond is uh, or other investment um, tool is going forward. So we have promises without a lot of clarity about how those promises are going to be honored and then a suspicion that there might be some ulterior motives for making representations that in fact aren't what the investor or somebody else would expect the represent uh, expect would be happening. Uh, so it's a very active field. The European Union has come up with a taxonomy to try to address uh, greenwashing. The Securities and Exchange Commission is proposing new regulations to address uh, public disclosure about greenwashing, and then it's doing some investigations about uh, concerns with particular representations. So this is a very active field, and it will remain to be seen how it evolves. I I'm pretty sure over time, there will be far greater transparency for any company that wants to claim uh, that it's acting uh, in a way that's consistent with net zero. We'll have to explain how. You know, we've chatted here today about, you know, growing emissions from China, but China is also adversely affected by climate related disasters and disruptions. Is there any, do you have any insight into what those look like within China? Oh, China has some very serious, it has drought issues, it has uh, extreme flood uh, issues, extreme heat. Um, but China, interestingly, uh, has been much more forthright about the need for adaptation. The United States does not have a national adaptation strategy. It's a bit of an outlier as we are on climate in uh, many places in not having a strategy. That would be a plan that says, these are the federal roles, state, local, tribal leaders. Here's how the private sector can interact on adaptation. Here's the metrics we're gonna measure for our resilience. Here are the priorities that we wanna achieve with adaptation. We don't have a plan like that. China in 2013 issued its first uh, adaptation plan. And just a few months ago, it issued a revised national adaptation plan, and it explicitly calls for a climate resilient China by 2035. It has also embarked on some major adaptation efforts nationwide. It has an initiative called the Sponge City Initiative, where uh, cities, you know, this rainfall, there's a lot of hardscape, there's no place for the water to go. Chinese leadership, and I'm not endorsing an a, a autocracy, by the way, I'm just explaining what they've done, but they've told cities, well, you need to plan for increased rainfall and where it's going to go. And so we want you to create essentially a sponge, more natural um, uh, parks that can absorb more water, whatever it is. 
they've also got a plan to ship water uh, from uh, very long distances from the dry areas, uh, from the wet areas to the dry areas. So very ambitious plans for how they will cope with climate change. You know, you, you mentioned there how the United States lacks a national adaptation policy climate, but are there any positive U.S. case examples with respect to policy causing a, a positive change in environmental resilience? Well, we see um, positive changes uh, and we see some exciting planning going on. I think Louisiana probably has one of the um, most ambitious plans, you know, after the BP oil spill, uh, the state, uh, well, Entities within the state got a great deal of money and they decided to put that to figuring out uh, some of its risks ahead. And of course, Louisiana suffers from sea level rise, but also some, it's just sinking. It's losing something like a football field of land every three hours or some such, um, but it's rapid loss of land. And so a number of parishes got together and did extensive planning to figure out essentially what areas would be saved, what wouldn't, uh, and then what investments need to be made to have a more resilient, uh, resilient communities going forward. Uh, surprising, it's a Republican state, but it embraced uh, this issue. And then we see uh, in New York and California, some very aggressive planning for, um, uh, for climate change. Um, but it's not enough. And sometimes um, there's backlash uh, to efforts because it threatens people when you start talking about their home or their community being at great risk. So in California, some coastal communities, they have a California has a coastal commission and its mandate is to ensure public access. And they said, well, the coastal commission said we need to plan for erosion from sea level rise. So we want communities to look at managed retreat as, as infrastructure and other things are threatened by greater sea level rise. A couple of communities said, we're not having it. We're not gonna do managed retreat because it's going to negatively affect our property values. In Oregon, they've had a terrible wildfire problem. The state decided, you know, we should really map the wildfire risk. And again, property owners, the homeowners, the maps got issued showing different areas at greater wildfire risk from climate change. And the homeowners said, we don't like this. We don't want, we don't want this, this out there. And the state pulled the maps back. So it will be challenging to figure out policies that work uh, as conditions are changing under people's feet. And um, some homes will lose value. And the question is, who's gonna be owning that home when that loss in value occurs? Your question is coming in, um, you know, recent reports of, uh, uh, discouraged or, or shed um, skepticism on the recycling of plastics. It can be difficult to live in a consumer-centric society and avoid things such as single-use plastics and other single-use materials that aren't particularly sustainable. 
Do you see any hope in steering big business in a society away from uh, single use or, or sustainability questionable modes of business to more eco-conscious materials and any any good news on progress and solutions? Well, where I see, I mean, the good news is um, I see the young people leading everyone in this. Um, and so they arrive with their uh, reusable water containers. They're the ones pointing out, I don't want that thing. It's going to come in a plastic container that I can't recycle. So I do think there's a lot of pu public awareness, particularly um, among, in my experience, the young people saying, I don't want to be a part of this. So I think political pressure on these types of issues, um, it can develop a life of its own um, as there's greater understanding of the difficulty of recycling this, uh, these plastics, how little of it gets recycled and how damaging it is, can be to human health uh, and the environment. So uh, that issue, I, have, I feel more hopeful for, I don't know how uh, long it will take, but I, I think there could be a groundswell to say we need to change how we do business. Well, it looks like we're coming to the end of our time here. We just have a few minutes left in the hour. So with that, I'm going to pass it back to Kirsten Kohlenberg with the World Affairs Council. Wow. Um, when I was speaking with several of my colleagues a couple of months ago saying, I want to do a informative and in-depth conversation about climate policy. I'm speaking to several colleagues across the country and they said, oh, you need to speak with Alice Hill. You need to confirm Alice Hill. So I want to thank you, Alice, for taking the time to speak with us here in North Texas. Brendan, thank you to you for moderating an expertly led conversation. Um, and thank you to our audience for participating here this evening. Um, again, uh, if you have not uh, ever engaged with the World Affairs Council before, perhaps this is your first time, or if you're not a member of the World Affairs Council, please consider joining us. Uh, we are a network of engaged citizens who have conversations like this all the time to better our community and the world around us. Um, visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership as well as upcoming programs that we'll be offering. I want to thank you all very much for joining us this evening. Have a great night. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you, Alice. Have a great one. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. Bye.